Hello and welcome to Scott Rock, where your hosts from Climb Scotland, Robert McKenzie, and me, Callum McBain, catch up with climbers every two weeks who have different epic tales to tell us. We hope you enjoy the show. And remember, when you're out climbing, be safe and do your buddy checks. Welcome back to Scott Rock, and today we have a real legend back, back on the podcast, back once again like the renegade master. Someone who I think doesn't get anywhere near enough recognition for all the work that he's done for us all, and all the change that he has made happen, that every single climber, mountaineer, hill walker in Scotland has benefited from. Yes, I am talking about mountaineer in Scotland's very own Kevin Howitt. Now, Kevin has been with us for 35 years, but he is now hanging it up and retiring. But before he goes, he is here to give us a history lesson. For those of you that don't know, myself and Callum both work for Mountaineer in Scotland, uh, and they have very kindly allowed us to run this podcast through our positions. Mountaineer in Scotland is the only recognised representative body for Hillwalkers, climbers, mountaineers, ski tourers who live in Scotland or who enjoy Scotland's mountains and they act as the representative body to support and promote Scottish mountaineering. But what started as a passionate team of volunteers, Mountaineering Scotland has been going for 50 years now, over 50 years now, and Kevin Howitt was the first paid member and he has been with us for 35 of those years. In this interview, Kevin takes us back to the beginnings of his career and gives us an insight into the major work that Mountaineer in Scotland has been involved in over the last three decades and that he has kind of been crucial in. Kevin gives his own personal perspective on all of the work that he's been involved in and how the organisation has evolved over that time. From access to our most beloved areas to climbing developments in both indoors and out, It is incredible how much work he has done. Now, it was hard to distill 35 years down into one podcast, so I've split this into two parts. The first focusing on his access, conservation and safety work. And the second part will be very climbing focused, looking at his role in the development of your indoor climbing walls, the entire coaching scene and our incredible Real Rock program. So... Strap in and enjoy a journey through time with Kevin Howitt. Now I'm going to preface this a little and say that I asked you for just a few highlight items so that we could chat about this in the podcast, but I was not expecting the 65-page document of stuff that you gave me. Um, That's an exaggeration. It's a well, I mean, it's not, it's not far off. But I mean, for me, it kind of just highlighted how much you've done with mountaineering in Scotland over the years, um, and how important you've been in creating the the Scottish climbing, the Scottish mountaineering scene that we all enjoy now. Um, 
how much you've been a part of that. And you are a pretty reserved person. You don't shout. You don't shout for much glory all the time. Um, yeah, yeah. But I think with this impact that you've had, it's something that I don't think you get anywhere near enough uh, recognition for. So I hope that this episode goes some way to paying some homage to to the work that you've done and how much we all benefit from it. So, um, like I said, feel free to go off on weird tangents and tell us all the all the stories. Um, but yeah, how did how did your life at Mountain in Scotland start? Like how what what was the year? What was the scene? Uh, what was your role? Probably need to give you a bit of background then. Go. So I left university down at Exeter yeah. in what seventy nine, nineteen seventy nine. Yeah, a long time ago. And I then bummed around a bit, doing lots of climbing. Um, I did a postgrad certificate in education at Bangor because I thought, well, all the holidays, I could go climbing. I was obsessed, basically, <laughs> with climbing. <laughs> and that was fine. However, when I came, when I finished the, that course, I continued doing some climbing. I, I, I needed to find some more money from somewhere. I needed to live. Yeah. Um, also rode my car off in Bangor. So I, I had no money at all. I got done for driving badly, you know. Strong. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, I ended up working uh, part-time doing bits and pieces for Castle LEA, the local authority. Yeah. In like, a, I was a storeman. I worked at LD Mountain Centre, which is a fairly famous uh, outdoor shop in Castle, owned by the future owners of Burgess. Um, I got to know them really well. And I still went climbing, and everything was geared around doing as little work as possible <laughs> <laughs> so that I could go climbing, right? Um, Sounds like you were the right man for the job then. Yeah, well, <laughs> potentially. And on top of that, I'd been, my mum and dad had brought me up to Scotland on all of our holidays since I was 10 years old, mm. uh, all over the place, right in the sky, when everybody seemed to speak Gaelic in was amazing, just incredible experience. Uh, Galloway, Cairngorms, Ben Nevis, all over, all, everything. So I had a, quite a, a long period of, of time during my childhood and then through university coming up in winter and then doing more climbing, rock climbing yeah. after that, that I was pretty much embedded in Scotland as being the place I wanted to be. I started coming up climbing here in the summer and moved up. Especially for winter climbing. Mm. And that's all I did. I was on the dole. I was climbing with Cubby and loads of other things. Alan Moist and a whole load of guys. Mark Charlton and loads of folk from the, the northeast of England, really. And a few of the Scots and up in the Fort William area. Had a great time. But, it, you know, after about eight years doing this, you do need to get a proper job. By which time I had a girlfriend as well, which made it more important. And Catherine was working down south. She said, you've got to get a full-time job. You've got to get a proper job. And she's the one who saw the advert for the National Officers Post at Mountaineering yeah. Scotland. And she wrote the application. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't write it? No, I didn't write the application. <laughs> I, I wasn't that. Bureaucracy, you know. 
I didn't, I didn't want to be involved in all that stuff. I was actually interested in becoming a mountain guide or something like that. Mm. Or doing something outdoors. And um, I even fancy, really fancied doing work in environmental studies and uh, just generally working outdoors anyway. Anyway, I made the application. I got the flu and I was called to an interview and I had the flu. Oh. And... Uh, <laughs> I was in, Catherine drove me up to Edinburgh and I was sitting in the car waiting and I'm, I'm dosed up the eyeballs with, uh, you know, flu stuff. I was drinking whiskey <laughs> to try and numb everything. <laughs> and uh, I went to the interview, came back out, I got in the car with Catherine and said, how did it go to the, I don't have that job. There's no way I've got that job. <laughs> but here we are. Yeah. What year was that? 1989. Bob Reed that said it that said that um, yes you were from England but you were a northerner so that made you all right. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I actually we'll come on to it, but I'd get a lot of lectures to clubs, and there was one club I was introduced as. Uh, um, unfortunately, he's not a Scot, um, but it looks like he, he's from Northumberland, so he just simply got out of the bed on the wrong side one day, and ended up in Scotland. So what was the what was the role of national officer? What why why did that get brought in in the first place? And, and what what were you there to do? Well, I mean, up until then, there were no members of staff. Everything was done by volunteers. Mm. There was an executive committee. They were the driving force. They did a lot, but they had a network of other club members helping them. Um, and I think it just got so big that they needed to be able to have somebody working full time to help. Well, working. Because actually they didn't have the money to make it full-time. It was a half-time post. I mean, that's why I went for it. Because I was still wanting to climb. You know, I didn't want to spend my whole five days a week working. Be being a, an actual adult? Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, no way. No way. Yeah. Horrible. <laughs> Plus I had a dog, you know. I yeah. got to walk the dog. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, it was a half-time post. And I thought, well, man, fantastic. You know, when I got offered it, of course, I had to move up because <laughs> uh, by that time we, I'd, I was living down in, in Newcastle, I think, again, doing a bit of work at LD and um, Catherine was, uh, she was working with uh, Historic England right. or whatever it was called then. Um, so they wanted me to get a place to live in the Central Belt, which was where most of the people were. I couldn't face it. Um, I wanted to be in the country, so I, I went and stayed with a mate for a little while until we bought a flat in Creef, and we've been here ever since. Oh, nice. Oh, you've been in Creef the entire time? Yeah, I think oh, we, nice. bought the, we bought our first flat here, probably 1919. Yeah. So what was, um, like, the, the national officer, obviously that was brought in at a time where uh, the volunteers needed help with, because things were getting a... a a lot bigger and there was a lot more bureaucracy. Jeez, I can't speak this morning. Um, so, like, what, what was kind of, what was the job role of the national officer to start with? 
to start with because it evolved quite <laughs> quite rapidly. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the reasons I ended up staying with it is because it evolved every few years. Mm. Um, I mean, I did everything. I was representing mountaineering interests, basically, on everything you can think of. Yeah. RSPB, National Trust, government, um, everything. As uh, SMLTB, as it was back in the day, um, and we, I was put into the, the rep for uh, Scottish Environment Link at one point, which was uh, an amalgamation of access and conservation bodies right. who would then be able to lobby as one to the government. Um, and I was on that for quite a long time. Uh, so I did everything. In mountain safety, I was on the TV all the time doing mountain safety stuff and um, doing access work, dealing with uh, access problems directly, but also, you know, looking at the wider sort of policy issues of access and just, so, but, but you got to remember, it wasn't just me. I had an executive committee. Yeah. That yeah. I was, uh, yeah, you still had the, the yeah. team of volunteers around you. Yeah. And they were the ones working mainly to produce the policies, which I had input to, mm. but then I would work to those policies. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it... It might look like I've been doing an awful lot on my own, but I wasn't. It was, it was all as part of a team. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I mean, even as part of a team, you've had your quite a, a large hand in a lot of things. Yeah, yeah there's some ideas have come from me, yeah. which yeah. I've been quite proud of. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, most of the time where we've been connected, it's all been through the climbing scene um, for obvious reasons. Um but I want to start chatting about some of the stuff that I don't know too much about. Um, and, I mean, let's kick off with, you mentioned the Scottish Environment link. Mm -hmm. So, um, like, your the, the kind of access work that you did, the, the policy work that you did, the lobbying work that you did. What, what was the um, Scottish Environment link and for the, what did you do with that? Yeah, um, one of the big ones that I remember, because we were representing mountaineering. I was there representing mountaineering and yeah. trust. So a lot of it was access. Um, at the time, mainly access issues because there was all sorts of problems of access. I mean, I'd, at that point as well, I'd even been uh, confronted by a gamekeeper with a 12-ball, a loaded 12-ball pointed at me, so get off my land. You know, which you don't expect. No. <laughs> so I knew what it was like and I'd come across some problems. But Link gave us an opportunity to widen that whole thing. Yeah. And with the Ramblers were part of that. Uh, WWF, RSPB, loads of different oh, organizations. Oh, it was big organization. Then. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's still going. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. Link's still going. And I, I think it was really important we were part of that sort of grouping because we had a lot more power than if we were in doing stuff individually. Yeah, sure. Uh, one of the things I, I was most interested in, because my background is in biology, zoology degree, was um, the forestry policy in Scotland at the time by the government was terrible. And we got a working group together at Link to look at looking at a completely different way of managing our forests and expanding them. It was um, It was sort of driven by Alan Watson Featherston, who set up Trees for Life, which is still going now. Right. Um, a major innovator in sort of 
re-establishing natural woodlands and forestry, but having people involved in it as well. So, you know, reforesting Scotland, but doing it properly with natural woodlands, with people living and working in it. And that was his focus and still is. And I thought it was brilliant and I was part of that. And I just remember the whole process was brilliant in producing this uh, paper that came from Link and we put to the government. We put to the Forestry Commission. Um, so yeah, we, and one of the great things about that was we, uh, well, Link set up meetings with Forestry Commission and um, we had one where they hosted us at Kielder on the borders in Northumberland. And uh, they had a new director general at the time who thought Kielder Forest was glorious, you know. It's just a huge, great plantation. It's flipping horrible. I, I used to work in it when I was with the local authority. Horrible place. And we were being told how great this was and how the, look at the great changes we're going to make and everything. Um, and we're all, you know, conservation and access bodies are looking at each other and this is appalling. Uh, and then we sat down and had a brew and uh, some of the foresters, the older foresters who were there hosting us and uh, somebody were eating and were going, this is, this is not the forestry that we used to do. This is awful. This is just planting, planting trees and cutting them down. He says, uh, we would love to be able to do proper forestry. Yeah. And that was an eye-opener. So after that, where Link arranged a, a meeting where we would talk to them about how bad their forestry was. So we took them to Galloway. <laughs> and my point there was that they've got these huge plantations all over the hills in Galloway and you can't get through them. You, okay, they're not on the top of the hills, but you walk along the ridges and you try and get down. It's impossible. Yeah. It's like wall-to-wall -wall Sitka. And tracks bulldozed right into the middle of the, this beautiful area. Mm. And they totally trashed it. Um, we also had people locally who were saying how bad it was for wildlife. Um, and uh, at the end of it, we thought, well, perhaps we've got there, you know. We actually managed to get through to them. Nah. <laughs> but it was worth it. And it was a really good educational thing for me yeah. to be part of that huge group. Yeah. And see like how the system works and how with enough people around change might be able to happen yeah so how did the how did that kind of branch into the early days of your access work then yeah because I, I like i know you were part of discussions with a uh, access to some of our most beloved climbing areas like okastari quarry yes. and um <laughs> and, and you know all the bird nesting uh, restrictions and stuff on the on the east coast as well yeah i mean I, at the time i was because I'm really interested in the environment and mm. birds and all this stuff. So I had a, a an interest from the conservation side as well as the climate side. Um, and I'm, when I'm at, when I've been doing my own climbing, I'm very conscious of that. Um, I've I've walked away when there's been you know nesting birds on on cliffs and stuff, or, and uh, I've not tried to over garden stuff, yeah. for instance. But I did get to the point where I could write um, a guidance and stuff for nesting birds and climbers. Yeah. And that came about because there was an incident in Ayrshire where two guys got arrested for disturbing a peregrine's falcon's nest. Oh, wow. um, it's, it's quite a good little crag. Um, but there's no information out there. RSPB weren't telling us where the birds were nesting. Yeah. Uh, there was no general guidance, nothing. These two guys unfortunately got arrested. All their climbing kit got confiscated as evidence. 
Um, and it was months and months before it came to court. Yeah. And we, I gave evidence as, as a an expert witness from Mountaineer and Scott. Oh, you had actually had to go to court as well? Yeah. Oh, right. John Donahue, who was the, uh, the president at the time, and I went to Ayrshire Crown right. Court, <laughs> <laughs> Sheriff Court, and uh, we're all sitting there waiting. And we're, we're prosecution, so we come second. And... Uh, we put our statement in and everything, and I've talked about the fact that we had no information. Uh, we couldn't tell people because the RSP wouldn't have let us, yeah. and all this sort of thing. Anyway, we didn't get to take to actually get up on the stand because the uh, the sheriff kicked it out. Yeah. Really? Yeah, he'd heard so much, and he, he just stopped and said, right, so climbers have got no information from you about or any of this. Um, well, kick you out. That was it. And the recommendation was that RSPB tell Mountaineer in Scotland all about where nesting Schedule 1 birds are. And that's where I wrote the, the guidance and the policy. And uh, we put it out, and that's the start of the whole bird nesting thing that we've still got going now. Oh, wow. Yeah. Solid judge in that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's good. Brilliant. So how long has that been in place for then? When was that? Oh, God. Uh <sighs> Probably mid mid to late nineties. Oh wow! So way over twenty years then. Yeah. Excellent. And it's evolved, you know, as yeah. more access officers come on board, it's, it's evolved into a traffic light system. And, yeah. Uh, but it was quite hard work. I mean, as as an example, at the time before we got it really properly established, you still had issues to do with you know the camel was being uh, bolted up. Yeah. And there was a peregrine nests around the corner. And the farmer and the local raptor study group people didn't want climbers there at all yeah. during the nesting period. But the farmers there, fishermen are all over the place. What difference was it making that we were there yeah. just around the corner? In fact, we were away from the nest. Um, so I had to go and have a meeting about that locally. I had a meeting with the farmer and the RSPB, raptor study, SNH, you know, and this all went on and on. And then we got to an agreement. So I did lots of little agreement things like that. Yeah based around the general guidance that I produced back in the 90s. How many areas in Scotland have we protected for climbing based on that guidance? Oh, God. Because I can think of... So, obviously, Nice Point was roughly the same topic of discussion, <coughs> was it? St Kilda? Ah, St Kilda's a different one. St Kilda's a different one? Yeah, oh, right, that, okay. that's quite a complex one. Before I got involved with mountaineering in Scotland, I wanted to go out to St Kilda because I'd seen the photos. And I applied to SNH or whoever they were at the time. Um, Countryside Commission, I think, were managing it. And they wouldn't let you because there's bylaws banning you. Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of knew about the place for quite a while. And uh, I knew that some climbers were then allowed to go out because we were doing a bit of research into climbing and nesting birds. Mm. The report that uh, was put to them in the end was pretty damning mm. about climbers and their effect on the what was a you know a very important conservation site. So they never gave permission again, and I kept trying and trying, and I, I never got permission to go. Yeah. Um, however, um, I researched quite a lot, you know, in, in the background into the the communities on the island. Um, I'd read the book by Martin Martin, written in the 1600s about the community and how they climbed and everything. 
and the, and I was intrigued by this whole idea of you know the the fact that the the first ever specified training for rock climbing probably happened there yeah you know the kids traversing the wooden uh, village uh, houses <laughs> getting strong for the climbing um and they described the things like the thumb. Thumb, and know, yeah. Classic. and All the things that Robbie was chatting about in the yeah. previous episodes. Yeah, exactly. Um, so when I, once I got all of this, and this, this was just after we were getting uh, the access legislation sorted, I put a paper to S&H and to, uh, to say, look, this is the historical aspect, the community aspect of, of, the, of uh, the islands. You should recognise this. It's from from a climbing historical point of view. It's really important for us, and you should allow climbing. And I, I got some a really snippy replies from people in SNH saying basically get lost, yeah. you know. Um, but in the end, the access legislation was enacted. And they have to change their bylaws, and SNH put the management to NTS, which of course have an open access policy. Yeah. So we won in the end. Nice. But it was all to do with disturbance of the birds and stuff. The Neast Point one, you mentioned Neast Point. Um, Neast Point wasn't to do with birds. Was it not? No, that was access. Oh, I thought it was. I thought the access was restricted because of the birds. No. All oh, right. Somebody bought the uh, the houses and stuff down by the lighthouse on Neast Point. Right. And they put a whopping big sign up at the start of the path from where the car park is in private property. Get out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's not going to stand. <laughs> that's not going to stand. No. Uh, lime kilns. Oh, lime kilns. Yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. Um, so the owner of lime kilns didn't like people going into that area of woodland and climbing. Yeah. Always been against it, I think. So he, he strengthened the fences and everything. And uh, the climbers just cut a hole in the fence and went in and climbed. Mm. And I think he got so peed off that um, he, he plastered uh, <laughs> grease on all the holes. Oh, all yeah, I remember this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, in, in, uh, sort of in reaction to this, somebody yeah. wrote, off, wrote on, the, on the boulder, F off Lord Elgin. And he was so annoyed, <laughs> absolutely ranting. It's probably not going to go down well, yeah, that one, is it? yeah. So I didn't get involved directly with that, but Graham Little, who was the president at the time, he went to see him. I don't think it went down well. Um, but I think, you know, constantly after that, there was the, um, they put nesting boxes up on the wall to try and prevent climbing. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, screwed in. And, yeah, yeah. Um, and I had to deal with that. Um, so it gradually, along with local, uh, Beryl Leatherland was a local rep. She lives down there. And she was really instrumental in trying to negotiate um, and access sort of calm down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was a good example, I guess. Was this all happening post-access legislation coming in? Or was it pre, pre and post? Pre? Oh. Yeah, it, was, it just went on and on over years. Yeah. yeah. Um, Starry was different again. You yeah. mentioned Ockenstarry. Um Somebody decided that they needed to descale all the loose stuff at Ockenstarry. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, we got notification of this and said, you, you need to have a discussion with them about it. So we went to Akastari and we talked about it. Uh, 
we met them and had a discussion. And we said, well, actually, there's not an awful lot of loose stuff. Not not that seriously loose. Yeah. And we climb all over it. We know, know what it is. And, oh, no, it's going to be just scale. We've had this report from Babti Geotech that it's as loose as terrible. It's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a danger to humanity type thing. <laughs> and I said, well, how are you going to do it? So, oh, well, we have uh, we have six-foot-length crowbars. I'm not, I'm not kidding you. You know, the most scientific thing you could think of. Got a big six-foot-length crowbar. We're going to put it behind the block. And if it moves when we're pulling on it, then we get rid of it. If it stays still, we would pull it off. <laughs> and I was looking at it and thinking, what the hell? Uh, yeah. And Roger Everett, who's a guidebook commit, uh, editor of the SMC Guides at the time, he was with me. And he and I worked quite a bit to try and do this. And we, we tried our best to stop yeah. them destroying the, you know, the roots, but they did what they did and they weren't, we couldn't stop them. They actually made the back of the quarry. Totally yeah. unclimbable. Appalling. Totally unclimbable, that side now. Yeah. yeah. That whole section between like, oh, what is it? Return of the King and uh, probably all the way up to Trundle Slab is yeah. like, there's only a couple of routes in there that are climbable. The rest are yeah, they're gone. Gone. Anyway, that was some of the work I did. Yeah. But then it, you know, <coughs> I mean, there's loads more. There's loads. Because, yeah, because, yeah, like, you know, in part of your dealings with SNH, not just St Kilda, but, you know, the, out of that came the Land Reform Act, you know. Um, I'm not saying you solely were part of the bringing the Land Reform Act. Oh, yeah, you, it was me. You, yeah, all of it was you. All of it was you. You were there doing your part for the Land Reform Act and for the Scottish Outdoor Access Code. And, um, you know, you were definitely instrumental when we were going through the whole foot and mouth thing as well. Yeah, I mean, both of those things, I think, we did really well on. Yeah. Actually. Yeah, really well yeah. on. Um, and we showed up other organisations and people in the process. I mean, the access legislation... <sighs> One of our previous presidents is Lord John Mackenzie, yeah. the Earl of Cromarty. Um, so he lives on the east. Um, on the west, of course, is an, another Mackenzie, uh, part of the same family, who are in the Gaelock area. Yeah. Um, but John has always had this thing about that whole area being, you know, very much wild wilderness and where his Mackenzies would come from, you know, the Mackenzie clan. Um, he's owned by... Uh, Dutchman uh, Van Vlissening and uh, I, I think he you know he, like a lot of current Dutchmen who have bought huge areas of land he thought it was immaculate and wild and natural uh, well of course it's not it's, it's yeah. very managed um, but he decided he, he needed to stop people going in and walking all over it and he didn't want them lighting fires didn't want them biking in all this sort of thing. So he put signs up and they were beautifully made signs. I mean, he must have spent quite a fortune <laughs> on these things. And he put them at every access point. Um, so John McKenzie saw these, was notified of them or something. He went and had a look. And he was outraged. God, bloody hell, I'm not having this. Um, and one of his McKenzie family, I'm not, I think it was a cousin or something. Um, she was actually sort of, I think, uh, in a, a relationship with Van Vlissenich at the time. So he got onto her and said, look, this is unacceptable. We need to have a meeting. So, you know, we're going to have a meeting at Letter U, which I've got to tell you is the most beautiful, beautiful house. Mm. 
in Scotland. I mean, if I had several million pounds, I would buy that place. I love it. Anyway, um, so we organised a meeting and we went along and uh, I think it was Bob Reid as president at the time. John McKenzie came. Um, we had Dick Balhari along. Um, Ramblers came. Uh, Dave Morris came. Uh, myself. And who, who am I missing? Nick Kemp there at that time? Nick, I think, was involved later on. Right. But not initial. Um, but anyway, we, we had numerous meetings spread over about a year and a bit. And gradually just trying to educate him about access, about the whole idea of freedom to roam that we had yeah. in Scotland. Um, and in the end, we came up with the letter you record, which people probably don't remember at all. But it was absolutely instrumental. Mm. So SNH had been set up by there. Um, Magnus Magnuson, <laughs> who was... Good uh, name. Yeah. He, he was on the telly um, quite a lot. He was a TV presenter and stuff. And he, I think, was... Was he the chair, I think, of SNH? Um, and I'm not quite sure how it happened, but he set up, as a result of the letter you record, mm. which we produced. And that, it was great, me being involved in writing it up and stuff and sending it around everybody and getting comments back and rejigging it and yeah. drafting seven. You went through numerous drafts. Um, Magnus Magnuson set up a sort of preliminary access forum with an SNH. And that's when the whole discussion started properly. Um, and when was this? Was this, this was obviously pre foot and mouth thing, because I think the yes. foot and mouth was the trigger, the, the final nail in the yeah, coffin. Yeah, it was. It. Yeah, because the foot and mouth showed how reasonable we were yeah, yeah. and how unreasonable landowners were. Yeah. 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 Um, and it, I mean, it took a long time. It was. Uh, how many years? It must have been two or three, three years or something of discussions and all sorts of stuff yeah. going on, meetings, meetings outdoors, talking to people, talking to different groups. Um, and it was through that I'd, I met um, people like Alan Blackshaw, who did some incredible background research into the, into the Freedom to Roam legislation yeah. and the, the Trespass Acts and laws in Scotland and stuff like that. And... Um, it was a brilliant time. I, I really enjoyed them. And it, we were, Bob Reed was uh, was operating a kind of policeman's uh, good guy, bad guy thing <laughs> in these meetings. So Dave, Morris. Hang on, who was the good guy, who was the bad guy? Or I, that? I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I was neither. I just sort of sat there in the background and shoved in a few comments. Um, Bob Reed was a good guy. Right. He was the reasonable one because he was a in a city planner, yeah, you know, he yeah. was very reasonable. Uh, Dave Morris was the, the champion of uh, the Ramblers, mm. and uh, a lot of the landowners just decided he was a rampant nutter, you know, and he was a bad cop, <laughs> basically. Um, and it, they played off each other quite well, actually, I think. They worked quite well. Um, but there was one excellent thing that... I mean, we went out and, on the hill and talked to stalkers and everything. And I was on the Black Mount one day and I was with the, the head of the, the Landowners Federation and the head stalker of the Black Mount Estates. Mm. And we were walking around the tops and uh, we're discussing access and stalking, the problems. And, um, and I was saying, well, 
where are your issues? Where are your problems? And you've seen how they stalked that they had to go along the just below the ridge lines and shot down into the quarry, they, all this sort of stuff. I said, well, the deer aren't a problem. Well, the, the walkers aren't a problem as long as they stick to certain routes. So if they go up all the ridges, then it's fine. Oh, yes, well, yeah, it is, but, you know, it still can cause problems. So, well, just for the stalking period, you know, allow people to walk up any of the ridges. And we had start, sat on the top having a sandwich with me arguing against every single thing they came up with. Right? Yeah. And in the end, the guy turned around to me and he said, you know what? You're worse than Dave Morris. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yay! <laughs> oh, that's definitely a clip of fame, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I loved it. <laughs> so you were the bad cop. You were the bad, bad cop. I was the bad, bad cop. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. During all this first period when I was national officer, I just kept meeting amazing people. You know, people that you talk, you heard about in yeah. the past and you, you read about and... Uh, Donald Bennett was one. Uh, you know, Donald produced some books and guidebooks and stuff. Uh, there's a classic book of him uh, that he did on uh, some amazing photos, black and white photos of cl big cliff climbs all over Scotland, yes. where he painted in the, <laughs> the climbers. <laughs> you can see it's paint. They've actually been drawn on. Oh, nice. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, but uh, he was with the uh, Scottish Rights Away Society at the time. Right. He was one of the other people on the access forum in the deliberations. Um, but I, I met Eric Langmuir, I met, you know, Alan Blackshaw, as I said, had meetings with them, and met Chris Bonington and other people down at the BMC. And we were trying to press the BMC to take the same stance as us, to get a completely full on, um, not, we didn't call it a right to roam, and we never have, and it yeah, never no, is. Yeah. I mean, it's a, a uh, a right of access. The right to responsible access, yeah. yeah. Um, but the BMC just, they wouldn't do it. Yeah. You know, they just, they felt they were on a hide into nothing. I think they'd been taking some solicitor's advice about it. So they weren't going to do it. Um, and um, I don't think they really backed us very much in Scotland either over that, which I think was, from my point of view, when I, that's how I felt. And I, I don't think, I think they could have done more. Yeah. Hey you know. Um, no, but, I mean, there's, God, there's all sorts of stuff going yeah. on, you know. Nevis Partnership. I was going to say Nevis Partnership as well. I was, <laughs> I was kind of elected as the rep. <laughs> Don't know how it happened, to be honest. Um, it was set up independently of us. Yeah. Um, but it was after a whole load of uh, discussions about safety on the Ben. Um, and I remember we had a really big public meeting at the Clachig all about the safety issues on the Ben. And it was obvious there was a bit of a, a difference of opinion amongst the climbing community. Mm. Uh, you know, I'd say more than half didn't want any uh, artificial signs and way marks and all the rest of it on the Ben. Um, but then there was another side who did to try and prevent all the accidents from the, the numpties that go up there in bad weather. Um, so, you know, I think because of that, we got invited onto the, the Nevis partnership and I, yeah. I went along. Um, I really enjoyed those meetings. Yeah. You know, it was a big group of people from all sorts of different backgrounds, including John Muir Trust, obviously, who owned the top of the Ben, uh, Alcan, who owned the other side of it, uh, the, the, the farmer in Glen Nevis, 
who actually I got to know over the years of living in Glen Nevis, you know. Um, it was quite a character. Yeah, I, 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 I rather liked him. Um, and then all the different uh, organisations yeah. and stuff and the local authorities, SNH. Yeah. Um, so it was great working with all of those people, actually. And we did things like raise loads of money for access, uh, for footpath repair. Um, and we did a lot, I think, to... Well, I mean, the, the North Face car park came out of that, didn't it? It did, yeah. That, and that's huge. Yeah, I mean, it, that took some doing. Mm. But we, we spent ages up there walking the different routes, working out where we could build the path. Mm. And i got to admit, I think the path went in, personally, I think it went in the wrong place. Um, you've walked it. Yeah. It's quite steep. Yeah, I think, you know, looking at path design, which came with a uh, footpath uh, trust later on, you wouldn't build that like that now. No. Uh, no, at all. No, you definitely wouldn't. No. Um, but still, just having that kind of access is oh, yeah. huge. Yeah, it made a massive difference. Massive. Yeah. In all of this work, like you said, you, you got to meet all these incredible people that have done awesome things for access and conservation and stuff throughout Scotland. But you also worked a lot with the climbing community as a whole, not not just the big dogs. Um, and I suppose one of the the big topics that you engaged with the community or helped engage with the community a lot with, you're laughing, you know what I'm going to say, <laughs> um, through various consultations and discussions and stuff, the big topic is the bolting. Do you really want to go into that? Yeah, I kind of do want to go into that. I think that's one of the biggest, the biggest changes that's happened in the climbing scene in our climbing existence like that's one of the big hurdles that got over overcome and i know it's not over but you know we've got guidelines that came out of a massive nationwide consultation on it where i mean that kind of thing hadn't really happened before within climbing on us on a particular topic and it doesn't happen all that often or hasn't happened all that often since. You know, I think that was a really, really big one. Yeah, I guess it was actually. If you look back to it, I mean, uh, there was sport bolting being done in England, hmm. you know, when it first started off. Um, there wasn't a great deal of consultation or, you know, a consensus at the time. Um and I think the, the the leading guys in Scotland at the time were experimenting. I mean, I was I was living with Covey at the time, mm -hmm. and he was experimenting with bolting up uh, Krigger Banker yeah. on the buckle. Um, I fundamentally disagreed, and I've never done the routes because of it, because I still disagree. Uh, for me, that's a mountain crag. Yeah. I know it's I know it's close to the road and everything, in, but but I I always had this dream that I could go and just take the bolts out <laughs> and, and, and climb it on gear. Ooh. That would make for an interesting conversation. Covey, I've taken your bolts out. Yeah, I wouldn't do it without, you know, getting his say-so, to be honest. I, I yeah, I respect Covey too much. And let's face it, Scottish climbing is Covey. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you know, right? yeah. I mean, right through the 70s, 80s, into the 90s, he was the man. Yeah. I mean, yeah, God, big respect. It's awesome. But yeah, I mean, uh, um, the brat, yeah, Graham, yeah. whatever his name is, um, he and I didn't get on too well. Uh, he was wanting to bolt it up, and he was—he, I think, was, was going to just go ahead and bolt it. 
Um, so Covey did his route to the right, which was like a bit of a mixture. Yeah. It had pegs, it in situ wire and a bolt um, and gear. You had to place gear on it. So it was kind of a hybrid, which was kind of happening as well down in in Wales. Yeah. Um, well, it's kind of Alpine style. That's kind of, yeah. did quite a lot and still do. Yeah, they do, yeah. Um, the, the Great Orm stuff, mm. a lot of that initially was sort of hybrid stuff. You know, you'd get routes like Oyster where you had to place gear yourself. There was a peg and yeah. then there was one bolt. Um, I think they're probably fully bolted now. I don't know, retro-bolted. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that was, you know, that was one e example of things happening. But it really got kicked off because uh, <laughs> Duncan McCollum uh, wanted to, because he he's a, um, a film cameraman. And he was going to put on a, an outdoor comp climbing competition, which they were doing in Europe. Yeah. And uh, I think John Dunn was involved in one down south. I was very involved in stuff. So he, he chose uh, to do a route at uh, Upper Cave Crag, Dunkeld. Yeah. And so he bolted up like a little diagonal line. And they were going to have this comp, but the, the word got out. And uh, they were all hell broke loose. And they didn't do the competition. How dare you do a competition on outdoor rock? You know, it's you shouldn't be. Um, so that was kind of, these were starting points, things happening. Um, and then when it really kicked off, there was issues to do with, well, a lot of people didn't agree with it, totally didn't agree with it. Others did. And they thought anywhere was game. Um, and then there was people in the middle. It's like everything. Yeah. And uh, I do remember the boats going in at Polney. Yeah. Um, and members of a local club who were quite embedded in the place, they, they, you know, was, they saw it as their their local crag, mm. went and took them out, and then they went back in again, and then they came out again. And it, the bolt wall started. Yeah. So uh, we realised we had to do something, and this was this was way back. I mean, this was the early early nineties when yeah. Graham Little uh, was president. So Graham and I were chatting about what we should do. And well, we thought, well, if we put a policy together and then debate it and see how we get on. So I wrote a sort of draft policy, I think. And uh, we organized a public meeting in a pub in Glasgow. Not the best place to have a discussion about bolts, I think. That was a gamble. Aye. Yeah, looking back on it. It was interesting. Uh, and it, I don't know if that, I don't know if there was a consensus looking back on it. Mm. I think we thought we got to a consensus um, that, you know, quarries, anything in a quarry, just do what you like. Yeah. And utterly blank, small crags that aren't in the mountains or sea cliffs. Um, and then we published it. Yeah. But then, of course, you know, things happen, things develop, and then more things get bolted up. And, yeah. Um, and gear changes as well, like the, the whole C-Cluffs thing was not in because the gear was just corroding, but now I've got yeah. titanium bolts. And... Yeah. yeah. So, but it wasn't just that process. I mean, years later, we had even more discussions. Uh, each time there was an, an issue arose, we tried to have a public discussion our AGMs. Um, and and that, the, all of these led to the, the final sort of guidance. Mm. And the guidance changed over the years, yeah. over 10, 20 years, it changed. Um, and we were trying to, to be 
we were trying to preserve the whole sort of trad ethic and the future of trad climbing at the same time as making room for sport climbing. And the vast majority of people out there, I'm sure, thought I was totally anti-bolt. But I wasn't. I've been climbing on bolts since 1977. Yeah. You know, I'm not anti-bolt. <laughs> and I've been climbing on them ever since. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just want, I just, I, I'm embedded in trad. Yeah. And really necky trad. And of course, that was the point where people were thinking, well, there's only a couple of runners on that. We should bolt it up. And I said, no, actually... Yeah. That is the future of trad climbing. Um, and you, you look at the E10s and 11s done nowadays. Okay, the head pointed, which I... Mm -hmm. It's cheating, but there again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's a different story. That's right. You've discussed that one at length in your last podcast. Yeah, I know. Um, but yeah, I mean, look at the things they're doing now. Yeah. You know, yeah. really necky E10s and 11s. Um, and it's great. You know, this is the future of yeah. climbing. Uh, of track climbing. Yeah. No, it's, it's the, I find the Bolton discussions really really interesting because it's it's not very often that Mountaineer in Scotland has seen a problem recognised. It's a, a problem within the membership and it's a discussion within the membership and it's a, a discussion about how we do our sport yeah. and taking it on rather than members coming to us and saying, you know, this is what we're thinking, like, uh, or, you know, you guys need to make a decision on this. Yeah. Um, and I think the way it was all done is it's a really strong example of, of, of why we have this organisation and why we have this membership, to be able to listen to the voices of the members and preserve what Scottish climbing and mountaineering is. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a it's a really really strong example of that, and like you said, it's evolved over the last twenty years, and it's going to probably continue to evolve. Um, yeah, I think so. And I, I mean, it, I, in any discussion, and I, I've learned this since nineteen eighty nine, <laughs> any discussion with any group, government, you know, quangos, whatever, there are extremes at either end. Um, and in a sense, you've got to ignore the extreme, the absolute extreme. Because the absolute extreme will never solve anything. You you have to look at where can we make compromise, and that's what, what it's all about, yeah. basically. Yeah. And you know, if you look at the guidance now we've got, I think it's actually quite reasonable. It it asks people to be sensible. If you want to retrobolt a crag that's been previously led on gear. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's well protected, then, you know, no, <laughs> it's not going to happen. Uh, you've got to accept that it's got a history. If it's utterly unprotectable or, or death-ridden, and I can think of one in particular that's a good example up near Avimo, um, then, you know, if the consensus is there, then, then I think it's okay to go ahead and do that, you know? And I think people who would be said, oh, no, no, you, you, you can't do it. These are really necky roots and, you know, um, and they've got a history. Well, yeah, but the, they used pegs, which are now rotten mm. and gone, and you can't protect them anymore. You know, what are you going to do? Top rope them all the time? Is that, all, is that what we do? Because I, I believe top roping is an absolute sin, you know? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. I know I'm I know I'm alone in that. <laughs> it's all right. But for me it's a sin. I don't do it. Um but yeah, I mean it, uh what's the crack in Lockinch crack called? Aviemore. Uh, the one up by Aviemore is Farletter. Farletter. So I did all the routes on Farletter mm. way back. Um nine, uh, late nineties or something. Mm. And they're really prick hard to lead on site. Um, in fact, I don't think many many people ever did lead them on site. They were all top rope beforehand. They had pegs placed, which are now rotten. The landing is appalling. I'd hate to fall off and hit the deck. And I scared myself silly, and I like scary routes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, somebody decided, right, well, it was Scott Muir actually decided, well, it would make a really good sport venue. It does. And it, yeah. yeah. Um, and he did it the right way because Scott's been involved in mountaineering Scotland yeah. from he started climbing, you know, and he, he knew, uh, you know, basically what to do. So he he tried to get a consensus locally. Um, he did it through us as well. Um, and he went to all of the first ascensionists and asked their opinion. And all but one said, we top rope them to death. Nobody that I know or very few people have led them. You've got my permission to bolt them up. So I thought, well, he's done a really good job there. He's actually done it properly. Yeah. And that's based on what he did at Bennybeg as well. He and I just discussed the whole thing with all the local people, the landowner, you know, everyone, uh, local clubs, everybody to bolt up Bennybeg. Um, and so, you know, when somebody went ahead and then did it, <laughs> Well, step back a bit, actually. When that was put out, we said, you know, it's actually fine. Everybody seems happy. We won't touch this one person's route because you've yeah. only done one yeah. route on the crack. Um, we'll leave that. It's covered in grass anyway. Nobody does it. Um, he basically said, if you put bolts in, then I'll chop them, which, of course, put people off. And then some bolts went in, they got chopped. And then it, and we, we were just uh, sort of waiting to see the tide of change happen, yeah. which it has done. It's now all bolted up. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's a great sport, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and actually, Oh, yeah, it's still hard climbing. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, it, Scott and I met the Forestry Commission, uh, the local forester head of department there, and, uh, you know, he, they were saying they don't want people wandering up the top and putting top ropes on all the cra- on the trees again. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, they wanted, they wanted this place contained, and they cut the trees down all around it to put light in to make it nicer. Yeah. You know, which is really good of them. Yeah, really nice. Of them. Yeah. Um, so that yeah. was a good example. That was a way of using a consensus opinion and, and going out and chatting to people. And that one extreme person, hopefully, has seen the, yeah. the light that you know they are yeah. at the very extreme of you know their thoughts on that. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a it's a really good example of you know ha- just having consultations and discussions with the membership, so still representing the the wishes of the membership yeah. still preserving the, <laughs> the the old ethic of Scottish trad climbing but still finding spaces for for the new sport climbing yeah. Yeah, I think it's a really good example um, there, you, you've, you've chatted about lots of and not all of but lots of the, the, the access side of stuff but you also had quite a heavy hand in the the safety side uh, climbing safety, mountain safety, drawing up policies. Um, so, and, and this is 
when you were working a lot with Graham Little through the Mountain Safety Group? Yeah, yeah, we kind of set up, well, yeah, there's sort of a, a, a lead up to the Mountain yeah. Safety Group. So what was that lead up and what did that consist of? Yeah, right, so, yeah, the Scottish Mountain Safety Group. Interesting background history was um, the Scottish Government gave money to Sports Scotland uh, to help try and diminish the number of accidents and, and deaths in the hills, yeah. in the mountains. And uh, I think Blythe Wright had been, and he was correct in many ways, Blythe Wright was saying how, you know, avalanches were a big issue, becoming more, more of an issue, and there was n no avalanche recording system. There wasn't very much research into avalanches. So he managed to secure a substantial grant from the sport, from government through Sports Council uh, to set up the Avalanche Information Service, um, which was fine. Yeah, we agree. Um, but it was a large amount of money and we were getting nothing for mountain safety. Um, and we felt that you needed a two-pronged -prong approach. And, okay, we needed research and we needed an avalanche awareness program as well as a mountain, an avalanche information service. Um, so we kind of lobbied Sports Scotland to try and find us money to actually do this, um, to set something up to, to do more educational work. And then, you know, it's hard work. You, you, and it was uh, Graham Little at the time and June Ross at the time, I think, was the, the vice president. And then the ministers would put out uh, warnings or whatever you want to call them, uh, statements to the press mm. about mountain hazards and warnings that it's going to be terrible and you shouldn't go in the hills and all this. And they were getting worse and worse, these things, really negative. Yeah. And we saw them as a, a, neg a very negative thing because people out there who don't mountain climb were seeing us as being irresponsible and stupid going out and climbing. Which were not, you know, the vast majority are not. Um, so we we really felt that we needed to have some control over this. So we lobbied and lobbied, lobbied, and finally got the Scottish Mountain Safety Group set up as within the Scottish Sports Council. Yeah. And they were managing it and they were chairing it, and uh, we would go along as reps, um, and then. It was chaired by Duncan Ross initially, um, and there Eric Langmuir, which is, I mean, I, you know, everyone in mountaineering terms has got Eric Langmuir's old book. It's brilliant. It was like a Bible. Um, I was just, you know, gobsmacked to meet him um, and, and be part of something with him. It was brilliant. Um, and then when Eric sat down, it was uh, Ian Colley mm -hmm. later on um, in the late 90s. But then we, we kind of, we got a, a grant money to help. So we started doing a whole load of different um, initiatives to help raise awareness about safety issues in the mountain. Um, we did leafleting, we did uh, winter essentials, avalanche, learn to read or get lost leaflets. Um, what else we did? Uh, simple slip, hypothermia. Avalanche information, along with the Avalanche Information Service. Um, an interesting one was uh, the whole issue about wearing helmets. 
Yeah, so one of the things we, all of this was based on research, uh, mainly through uh, the Mountain Rescue Committee of Scotland and, and their, uh, all their data about rescues and, and injuries and what have you. Um, and we thought we'd, we'd have a look at helmets and the need for helmets. And I think the vast majority of uh, winter climbers no, you got to put a helmet on. Yeah. You'd be really stupid not to. <laughs> yeah, you know, you're not going to be a happy person. Plus, it keeps your head warm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a no-brainer. But when we looked at the statistics, um, there was an awful lot. The vast majority of really bad head injuries um, were done to walkers walking over rough ground in winter, slipping and smashing their head on rocks. Oh wow. Um, and even in summer, there were incidents of people tripping without helmet on and hitting the back of their head there and yeah. killing themselves instantly. Oh, wow. um, also, scrambling. Yeah. I mean, I think scrambling is way more dangerous than any climb could be. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's not a stepping stone to rock climbing. No. It's the other way around. Yeah, you're consistently on loose chossy ground. Yeah, with no gear. <laughs> with no gear, <laughs> yeah. no helmet. And possibly tied to somebody who's equally in a, in a risky situation as you are. So we uh, we looked at the um, the stats to do with uh, whether we should say that people wear a helmet or not. Um, and it was quite clear from them at the stats that we had at the time that actually we should be recommending walkers in winter wear a helmet. But you can imagine trying. To see that. <laughs> yeah, there's no way you're going to be able to say that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so we discussed it at length in the SMSG and with you know, our members of uh, the team at Glenmore Lodge were part of that group and, and they were saying, well, you know, does that mean in summer we have to put helmets on walkers when we're going out on a walking trip with it? You know, do you have to have people doing that ML with a helmet on? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I can imagine all the ML trainings out there with their little red helmets on. <laughs> I mean, it. You know, it, the numbers were relatively small anyway, mm. to be honest. So did we, if you were looking at it objectively, the risk was still quite small. So, yeah, we never went ahead with that one. That was one of the, that was an interesting discussion. Interesting. I, I, yeah, it was great getting all that detail. And Bob Sharp from the Man Rescue Committee at the time was the one putting all this data together. Yeah. And has has done ever since. I and mean, he's, he's written a book about the MRCFS as well, just out. Um, and he was a, Absolute fond of knowledge. Incredible. <laughs> yeah, that was quite good. Yeah. Mm. So some of the other things we did were lectures. Oh, yeah. And they were interesting. Um, <laughs> we did a thing called the Scottish Winter Experience Lectures. Right. So uh, when I was climbing in the... Uh, before I got the job mm. in the 80s, I was living in Paul Moore's garage. Now, Paul Moore's is a mountain guide based in Tyfurst in Glencoe. Yes. And uh, we wanted somebody to d deliver these things. And uh, Paul had already done stuff at the, what were at the time funded by the BMC, lectures at the Clackig every winter. Yes. Um, so we approached him and said, would you do this series of lectures for us? You know, can you do a slideshow and everything? I said, oh, I've got some great slides. I can do, yeah, I can do a really good slideshow. So the whole idea of Paul is, you know, educating people to be safe in the mountains in winter, particularly. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so he sets this thing up, and I, I go along to the first one, and it was mobbed. 
Um, anyway, I remember Paul said, I'm just going to experiment a bit with some of these photos. And, so, and it, I don't know whether, you know, shock tactics are perhaps the way forward or what. Yeah. I said, oh, okay, yeah, go for it, whatever. And uh, I'm sitting there in the back watching. So there's an, and he's talking about ice axe breaking. And he was showing you, you know, photographs yeah. of the ice, how you break, and he was holding it in, in the front of the stage, showing people and stuff. And, and you know, but of course, you got to be really careful because you can get this wrong. And then this image popped up, and someone had come off uh, ice axe breaking, and they had been practicing, yeah. and they lost control, and the whole length of the ice axe had gone through their upper thigh, and was sticking out the other end, and by the knee. Uh. <laughs> and he literally <laughs> he put it up for like split second and I heard everybody in the in the whole hall go because <laughs> it was like on and off I think they brought it home I mean yeah. you know how dangerous it could be and, and they were really successful we ran there for years yeah. and mobbed with the number of people coming to them so that, that was a really good initiative it was very good. I mean, all these initiatives were really good. Um, and we actually managed to get the, the ring fence budget, mm. £23,000, which is quite good per year, um, transferred to us and we managed the whole thing. And we had to obviously account for it yeah, in yeah. our reports back to Sportscom. That happened in the late 90s. Um, and it became we wanted a wider group of people on it. So that we could have uh, a, a larger group of people inputting information to us to help us, and and also you know, two way street, and we could educate them. So we had police, well, obviously man rescue, um, we had local authorities, and all sorts of different uh, organisations on it, and it became the Scottish Mountain Safety Forum, because it was much more of a forum, and and by that time anyway, we had. Uh, a mountain safety officer in post as well. Right. Um, Who was? Uh, the first one was Roger Payne. Uh, Roger Wilde. Oh, Roger Wilde. Yeah. Um, so Roger, basically, the SMSF would get together. I think he he would be at the meeting and keep the, the minutes and everything. Yeah. And then, of course, whatever initiatives were came out of it, he would be the one going ahead and doing the initiatives. Um, and I'm pretty sure Kate Ross, who was one of our first vice presidents, she chaired that organisation for quite a while, and it, you know, and it's. I think the the government still give us a grant towards that because yeah. they see the worth of it, okay. the educational aspect of it, which is really good. So it was great being right at the beginning and the part of that yeah. and seeing it develop over the years. Yeah, and the the impact that that's had as well. Like, there's been a lot of seismic changes and decisions made based on. That research, the, the the research they've done and the discussions they've had, and yeah, yeah. definitely, yeah. I mean, I, I mentioned earlier that you know when before we had a mountain safety officer, I was basically safety officer, um, and I did a lot of TV. One of the best ones we did, I think, was um, we wanted to say, you know, what kind of equipment you needed to take yeah. on the hill in winter, um, and if you were in a group of a few of you doing hill, winter hill walking. Because we hadn't really concentrated on that quite so much, and Cairngorms can be a vicious place in the winter. Um, so uh, we went up on the hill with Hazel Irvin, oh, yeah. who's a, a presenter for, um, I think for ITV actually, not BBC. And she's still on TV. I saw her last night actually doing snooker. Oh, 
<laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, so we, we got up there and it was blown a hooli. It was really like proper winter conditions. Yeah. And yeah, there was a poor cameraman there getting blown apart by the wind and the, it was snowing. And uh, we said, right, well, these conditions, you need, if something get, goes wrong, you need to get into a shelter. And uh, Pete's brought a, a group shelter, which is basically a, a huge sheet. And you, you put it right, right over, you sit on it and bring it right over the top. And you'd be amazed at how warm, you know. So we said, we got in, we got Hazel in, Pete and me. And uh, we had the cameraman looking through a little gap. And they would, we're in there talking about, you know, how to keep warm. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I said, the most important thing that you need to do in situations like this, because it can get really cold, even in this. I mean, you're out of the blizzard, but it can be very cold. It could get down to minus 10, minus 15 or whatever. Um, the important thing is shared bodily warmth. <laughs> His level looked at me, went, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you could maybe have worded that one slightly less creepy. Yeah, I think it came across as really creepy. <laughs> So, I mean, that's kind of branching into your your communication outside of the organization as well. And, and part of that, while you're doing all of these, all of the safety work and access work and conservation work and policy work, you're, you were also, you also started the newsletter and the magazine. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, as if you didn't have enough to do. Right from the start, I, I was involved in sort of putting, well, not putting the newsletter together, but by, you know, printing it off on a printer and sending it out to the clubs. Because he only went to club secretaries. And we used to add a whole load of, you know, maybe 20, 30 copies and hoping they would distribute them at their meetings so members could see the, the news. And they'll just print it on a sheet of paper. And that was like that for years. Yeah. Um, but it, as we grew, we realized we really needed to get the information out to members uh, directly. Yeah, so one of our very early, well, for me, very early vice um, secretaries, Evelyn McNichol, and uh, she was teaching me how to use a computer because I had never used a computer in my life. Uh, so she, I would write and handwrite the, the newsletter information and stuff, give it to her, she'd type it all up with me helping. Yes. And then we print it off and send it out. Um, but we needed to do a little bit more than that, really. And uh, so we thought, well, we'll try and see if we can get a publisher and get, get somebody in as editor of the magazine, because I was doing everything still at the time. We put a thing out there saying, if anybody's interested uh, and would like to come and uh, do a presentation for us and see what they would do, um, please you know, come in. So I was on that committee. There was uh, the president, vice president, various other people. And myself, and we were interviewing them. And one of them was Peter Evans, who was a uh, climber editor at the time, or climber and hill walker, I think. I don't know, I can't remember. Uh, and uh, Peter was the one who came up with the name Scottish Mountaineer. That was in his presentation. So that was him coming up with an idea. Um, and he punted it to us. And we all thought, this is great. It's a really good idea. Yeah. Um, but then we looked at the finances, and we couldn't afford to employ him. It was a quite difficult situation, but Peter was really good. He gave us a column in Climber magazine, yeah, uh, so we could get more information out. 
and he gave us quite a lot of advice and he he was really good actually um <laughs> but of course it just fell to me <laughs> to do it <laughs> but luckily i mean we had mike dales in post as yeah. uh, access officer and roger was doing the safety so there was a bit of space in my in my work to do this so yeah. it's obvious to take it over so i became editor of the mag and how long were you editor for oh god <laughs> i'm not sure actually do you know how many copies you've got out? no <laughs> I'm sure we can figure that out. I'm going to figure that out. After this, I'm going to go and figure that out. <laughs> it's got to be, I, I don't know, 12 years? Yeah. Something like that. But I mean, now we're on the, we've just put out the 100th episode. Uh, episode? Issue. Yeah. Uh, you know, look what you've started. Yeah. And it was small to start with. Yeah. I mean, it. when we decided to have it published, we approached several different companies to publish it. Yeah. And uh, we actually ended up going with my, uh, this company down near Manchester. <laughs> um, they only did three issues for us, although we had a contract with them for two years. Uh, they, the, the CEO changed yeah. and all things changed. But I went down, obviously I went down and saw where they were doing it. And I chatted to the guy who was page setting for us. I couldn't believe it. They did loads of titles uh, a lot of ma uh, motorbike titles and things like that and some porn titles as well <laughs> uh, okay I, we didn't realize this when we when we engaged them and i went down there and, I'm in the, and they said they introduced me to the uh, the page setter that i was going to be using and i sat down next to him and there's all this porn stuff everywhere. It's <laughs> like, oh my god! Oh, brilliant! Anyway, they only did three. You can imagine a mix-up. Yeah, yeah, that wouldn't have gone down well. <laughs> no, no. All the old school nightmares having to go into the supermarket and look at the top shelf for this nightmare. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, I don't think that would have gone down well. Yeah, it was quite an interesting experience. <laughs> um, anyway, we went out to somebody else and we got a really good. Pro sports promotions in Glasgow were brilliant. Yeah. Um, and worked with them for quite a while. Um, and I, I suppose we used the name Scotch Mountaineer, that came from Peter. Um, but a lot of the stuff in there, it, it, that came from me as an editor trying to find things to, you know, to be in, of interest to our members. So I got an awful lot of regular things happening. I got. Uh, well, Irvin Butterfield, who'd been helping me out since I started, yeah. um, you know, he was doing regular stuff for us, a whole series of different things, actually. Uh, some of the other ones, I got um, John Allen to do stuff about general mountaineering and scrambling and all sorts of things like that. Um, Ian Evans, who, amazing mountain photographer, he did a whole series about how to take mountain photos and the best way to do things and, you know, the techniques and yeah. techniques technicality of it of all david jarman uh doing stuff uh looking at different ways of walking up hills rather than just take you know you got the guidebook uh you've got a way that you walk up that's in the guide the yeah. Munros or whatever the corbett's he would look at alternative routes and say how good they were yeah uh, hamish brown did stuff for us as well yeah it was really good yeah. um and then in climbing terms I wanted to set up something that 
I thought the outdoor mags in the country were pretty much ignoring Scotland. Mm. You know, paid lip service to it because they're all published and edited by people down south. So I started Claim Scotland series and I got to... Is Trezard actually did a few for oh, us? Yeah. Really? Um, yeah. Oh, cool. I know. Interesting, because he, you know, he was he was quite active climbing at the time yeah. and climbing pretty hard. It was really, really, really interesting to have him do it. But um, Guy Robertson mm. did a lot, and Dave McLeod did a lot, and they, they shared the winter stuff and summer stuff together. Um, and I got John Watson, who'd just come on board with his uh, his very first bouldering book. Um, and he started a whole series about bouldering around Scotland, yeah. which went down really well. Um, and we also had set up a really interesting initiative to, this was part of the 25th anniversary, to look at, pick a route that's been done since the 1800s. Yeah. Um, the best route of each year, put them all together in a row and then get a group, get people to go out, sign up to one, and go and repeat it in modern style, right? And then write about it. Uh, and it was called the Climb Through History. It was part of our 25th celebrations. And it, the initiative came from Gordon, uh, Graham Nickel. Um, and it was brilliant. It's still, I've still got all the info. We didn't get every single route signed up to and climbed in the time that we, we needed it. Yeah. But it'd be great to resurrect it. I think, I think that'd be good to try and resurrect. That could be your retirement mission. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Some of them are appallingly bad. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> Covered in grass. <laughs> but they're quite interesting. So yeah, that's where Climb Scotland came from. And, oh, uh, really? Oh, yeah. Wow, that was the birthplace. That's where the title came from. Oh, cool. Yeah. There was a period when there was a, a couple of um, members had said there's far too much climbing in the magazine and not enough hill walking. Yeah. And I sat down and I did a, an assessment of how many pages over a whole year. Yeah. And it was roughly the same. Um, I mean, in total, I, I guess it was more on the walking side, but only just. Mm. So there was quite a lot of climbing, but that's because of my background and my yeah. interest. Yeah. Um, but anyway, they, they decided that we needed to reduce the amount of climbing information in there. Um, particularly that about competitions, which our members, very few Did, of them are interested in. Didn't, neither don't care about. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which is fair enough. So um, by this time, the magazine was being uh, produced by Herald and Times, mm. and they were able to put it as a digital um, version as well. So it costs nothing to have a separate uh, e-active digital section right. purely about all the things that were going on in the claiming world. So, I mean, it covered everything. It had loads of competition stuff for the kids. We had articles by the kids yeah. doing it. I remember um, I wrote a few. Yeah, you did. Yeah, I, I wrote yeah. a few back in the day. Um, it had loads of stuff about, uh, well, I got people like um, Julian Lyons to write about deep water soloing, yeah. you know, and, and Robbie Phillips. He, re- he wrote several bits for it as well. Mm-hmm. Loads of really good stuff in there. Um, and it grew and grew and grew. Um, it only lasted two years before uh, I I stepped back um, and Neil Reed that took over. Neil took over. It, it carried on for a, a few issues after that, but not so many. Um, I didn't have the time to do it. I was engrossed in coaching development by then. Yeah, but I mean, I I truly believe that that I think there is a place for a climbing 
e-active magazine separate to the Mount Scottish Mountaineer because there is so much going on. Well, I think we all owe Kevin a huge debt of gratitude for all of that work, which I'm sure has benefited everyone who enjoys the outdoors in Scotland. Look out for part two, where we get into Kevin's favourite topic, climbing. Oh, and in the meantime, do your buddy checks. <laughs>